This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. COVID-19 infections are rising in the UK, France, and Italy. And that has some experts on our side of the pond concerned. As we've seen in the past, what starts overseas doesn't always stay overseas. And surges there have often followed surges here. And the constant ebbing and flowing of the pandemic is causing many of us to experience what's being called hope fatigue. Joining us now with her thoughts is Dr. Mia Termina, infectious disease specialist at Dooley Health and Care. Welcome back, doctor. Hey, Sasha. What do we know about this European COVID surge? You know, exactly as you said, we have th- throughout this entire pandemic followed a trend where what we see in Europe and in the UK often precedes what we see trend-wise in the United States, usually by about four weeks or so. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on these numbers coming up, looking at the subvariants that are sort of dominating what is going around in Europe and in the UK and seeing if we start seeing those same upticks here again as we move toward the typical time where we see these numbers start to come up, October, November, December. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I expect to happen. Yeah, we we know the future is uncertain, as it always is. But, you know, how do we view this European surge as indicative of what's to come here? Oh, I absolutely think it's indicative of what's to come. I don't know that we're necessarily going to see astronomically high numbers, you know, certainly not what we saw last December and January with Omicron, but we will see numbers coming up and, and they're going to be a, a number of reinfections, people that have had COVID before and have had their boosters and have had their shots because it is the destiny for many of us to get COVID more than once and people are not immune to this. We still need to be mindful of additional mitigation especially if we're uniquely vulnerable to more severe COVID illnesses as we approach the time of the year where we can be exposed to lots of viral illnesses. Which subvariants are surging in Europe? You know, we're still seeing an overwhelming majority of Omicron BA5, but we are looking at Omicron BA4.6, um, uh, Omicron BF7. We're watching some of these strains and some of these numbers start to take a, a piece of the pie here. Um, everything in the three to seven to 10 to 15 percent, uh, you know, calculations, not seeing anything really pushing into that 50 or 60 or 70 percent to push Omicron BA5 completely out of the way. You know, many Americans were were torn right now over various headlines in in recent weeks that claim that the COVID pandemic is over. I know you've shared your thoughts on this on the program in recent weeks, but how realistic is this, doctor, to think that COVID's over? It's not over. It's never going to be over. We are always going to have COVID cases. We're always going to have seasonal variations where we have upticks in COVID cases. And we're always going to have the potential of a subvariant that becomes more contagious and infects more people and maybe temporarily disrupts our day to day. But when we come to the end of a pandemic in general, all we're saying is that we believe and we have accepted an acceptable amount of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. I still find these numbers to be unacceptable. I still find uh, many of the hospitalizations and deaths to be preventable, uh, especially when I see them in folks that have uh, are under-vaccinated. Not that they haven't had any vaccines, but mm-hmm. they just haven't kept up and stayed up to date. And those are still the ones that, that sometimes have more severe hospital courses. And I don't want to see COVID-related deaths this fall, uh, but I know inevitably we will see some. So all of that is still in the context of accepting that 
people want to live mask free and go out and, and choose to be vaccinated or not be vaccinated and go back, quote unquote, to normal. Um, and yeah. this is what we're going to live alongside. Well, only eight million people in the U.S. have gotten the latest booster. Two hundred million are eligible for it. What can we do to get that number up? We need to just continue to make good choices and and lead by example. I know there's a lot of vaccine fatigue out there, but if we do uh, uh, get better uptake of this vaccine, I'm optimistic it could be one that has some durability to it. But we, like at every point during this pandemic, have to vaccinate at a pace that kind of outpaces mutations that can overcome our vaccines. Right now, we know it's a pretty darn good vaccine for what's going around. And if we all get it and we eliminate uh, a significant percentage of active cases of COVID, that's less people that become infected, and maybe we won't need to have boosters for the majority of us for Mm -hmm. a year or possibly more. I would love to get to that point. This is not simply yet another vaccine that we all need to get three months or four months after our last one. For many people who are eligible, it's been a year since you've been vaccinated. Go out and get this booster. Well, this latest bivalent booster, do we know if it will definitely protect us against what's currently circulating in Europe? There's no definites, but that's exactly what they're looking at right now is as we have these subvariants, keeping in mind a lot of the subvariants that we're seeing right now are subvariants of Omicron variants we've already seen. So they're similar enough genetically that the vaccine should recognize them far better than the previous boosters and the previous versions of the vaccine. So it's the best of what we have for sure. But time is going to tell exactly where that efficacy falls. We're also going to look to, you know, our products like Evusheld, which is a monoclonal antibody injectable for individuals who are not able to be vaccinated or not predicted to have a uh, robust response to vaccine. We want to make sure that holds up the limited supply of monoclonal antibody therapies we have. We want to make sure that holds up Paxlovid as well. So all of this testing is constantly producing data in real time. So mm-hmm. I'm certainly waiting to hear more numbers. Monoclonal antibodies. It's, it's been a while since we've talked about that here on Reset. Can you remind us what that is? So there's a couple of different monoclonal antibodies. The one that we're most familiar with are the ones that go intravenously in individuals who have been infected to try and go ahead and and bind up the virus that's circulating and and be like an influx of of passive antibodies. Unfortunately, we've lost funding and uh, are not able to provide that as a free service. And these are very costly at this point for the vast majority of people. Supplies are exceptionally limited, but we do still have some monoclonal antibodies available. And the other one I spoke of is an injectable preventative that's given as pre-exposure prophylaxis to people who are deemed at higher risk, immunocompromised folks. They're intramuscular injections given every six months. So, you know, with all the things that we have swirling around, doctor, we've got COVID, the the flu, monkeypox, what disease is the greatest risk to the average Chicagoan right now? Right now, it's still COVID. That's still what's going around. That's still where the numbers are. But we are seeing flu cases coming up week over week. I mean, we're we're recording over a 1,000 cases a week in the U.S., and this is still very early. October is a very early flu season. So seeing something that is coming at us at you know, a thousand cases a week already. We really need to be mindful that influenza could be uh, the more detrimental uh, illness this fall. But right now, you're far more likely to walk out the door and get COVID than you are flu or monkeypox. But you certainly should be aware of your risks for exposure to all of these things. 
This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we are talking with Dr. Taramina, infectious disease specialist at Dooley Health and Care. So, doctor, for a while, many people wanting the monkeypox vaccine, they didn't have access. So what is the landscape of availability right now? You know, it is expanding, which is a good thing. Not only are we talking about vaccinating our uh, individuals who are men who have sex with men or HIV positive or on HIV preventatives that have tended to be the, the largest group, we are looking at individuals who have any higher risk sexual practices with anonymous partners, regardless of sexuality or sexual identity or gender identity. Also looking at folks that are caregivers for these people, folks that anticipate having higher risk activities. Um, we're, we're rolling down the, the access and expanding uh, availability of this vaccine, essentially to anyone who deems themselves to be at higher risk. This is not simply going to be somebody who's immunocompromised and walking down the street, not necessarily having close physical contact or sexual contact with other people, but pretty much anybody who is at a higher risk of of sexual exposures or close contact or caregiving uh, or working in labs or communities or anticipates those risks uh, should be eligible at this point. Last week, we heard from the chief medical officer and health equity experts on how monkeypox being associated with the queer community and male to male sex, how that generates stigma, right? So from your practice, can you talk more about that? Your, your experience of monkeypox from a health equity perspective? You know, there is a disproportionate number of cases that are falling in, uh, you know, categories of men typically between 30 and 50 years old, um, and men who have sex with men as being highest risk, um, are, uh, black and brown individuals are also at unique risk with lack of access to the vaccine and HIV positive patients and patients on PrEP. But this is not a sexually transmitted virus. It's a virus that simply requires close, intimate contact, which means that sexual activity tends to be close, intimate contact. And that's what's placing people at risk. We also are seeing an a nice downturn in in the numbers and case counts. We've had kind of a plateau here in Illinois, and that is because of expanding access of vaccines to those who are the most vulnerable and also education. We have seen uh, the significant amount of the LGBTQ community step up and uh, understand that they may need to amend some of their interactions with their friends and their loved ones as they move forward. And that's caused sort of a lack of that further surge of, of infections we were seeing earlier this summer. So from, you know, from COVID to monkeypox to the flu, is healthcare adapting at being ready for these widespread diseases? I hope so. I mean, I, I know I personally am, and I think infectious disease providers and, and people that work in epidemiology are ready to pivot, and we have been on our toes for the last several years. Um, I think that not learning from each of these things that is thrown our way is really going to place us at an unfortunate place to be able to adapt and adjust. We can look back at two and a half years, three years of a COVID pandemic and see where we could have made better choices. And if we don't accept that, then we're going to make the same mistakes again and again with each subsequent pandemic. The last thing that I want to see is us having a otherwise not great influenza year coming up and starting to shut things down or, or, you know, do things where we are pulling kids out of school. There are ways to mitigate. Vaccination works and we need to stay up to date on our vaccines as personal responsibility and Mm -hmm. responsibility to our children. And I think that we can, you know, learn from what we've experienced and and push through. So today is uh, World Mental Health Day. 
Dr. Termina. And uh, these past few years, they've really taught us a lot when it comes to that area. I know hope fatigue and compassion fatigue have affected a lot of us, especially healthcare providers. So for those listening who may not be aware, can you just define those two terms for us and just talk briefly about how they relate to burnout? So certainly we talk as as providers and physicians and staff in hospitals um, about having this compassion fatigue where um, the unfortunate tendency is to see someone come in with COVID or with complications of COVID and, and feel a frustration that there was a better way. They waited too late to come in. They didn't stay up to date on their vaccines. And it's really challenging when you see sick person after sick person after sick person present like this, and you just feel it deep inside you that this could have been prevented. We do the best we can to not uh, obviously take that out on the patients in any way, but it, it does burn us out and we internalize a lot of this energy. So there needs to be those mental health services for providers, for hospital workers, for staff, for everybody who's been in a first responder role mm-hmm. to be able to kind of have that positive outlet. And hope fatigue is, is yet another. I mean, we just, it's, it's the idea that every time we think we're almost to the finish line, we just get knocked back down. So there's no even cautious optimism. We start to become pessimistic and doubtful of anything like a statement that the pandemic is quote unquote over. You know, we have people saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe it Mm -hmm. until, you know, it's just can't believe anything. It's just going to change next week. Well, how have you personally been dealing with either of these forms of, of burnout? I am just so blessed to have a wonderful staff uh, and all of us have been in this together through so many ups and downs, working day and night through all this time. And sometimes we sit back and maybe it is over a glass of wine and just talk about what we've been through. I'll give a a quick shout out to my uh, nurse practitioner, Hubert, and my PA, Sarah. The three of us ran the Chicago Marathon yesterday. Oh, awesome. uh, Congratulations. Thank you. And we we have been working through this pandemic um, as part of our ID practice for the last two and a half years, but we've also been able to find some solstice and getting outside and running and burning off some of that energy and appreciating what we have. My goodness. I, I didn't know you were running the marathon. I wouldn't have called you on the Monday morning. <laughs> no worries. Oh, you're good. the best, Dr. Teramina. Well, you know, in a moment, we're going to look at this issue uh, further, especially within the black community specifically. So I w- wonder your overall message to all of us about how to just navigate these times of just major exhaustion and uncertainty. I think there we need to destigmatize everything associated with saying we need help. It is okay to need help. It is okay to not be okay. Uh, there are resources simply saying the words, I'm not okay, to a trusted friend, a trusted professional is, is liberating for many people just to put it out there and take a little piece of what you're experiencing and give it to someone else to hang on to. And that will allow for folks to check in with you. I would encourage you if you have uh, weapons in your home or if you have uh, medications that, that could be uh, dangerous to keep, uh, to make someone that you trust aware uh, that you have these things or go ahead and and bring them over to a safe place so that you have a safe environment in your home and know that there are just countless resources that you can reach out to, phone numbers you can call. You're not alone. You are absolutely not alone. And before I let you go, Dr. Team Reset is curious, what was your time yesterday? (laughs) I ran a 413. Awesome. That's incredible. Dr. Mia Taramina, everyone, thank you so much and, and have a great week. Thank you.